Fresh Art International presents conversations about creativity in the 21st century. This is Fresh Art International. I'm Kathy Bird. Our podcast documents the oral history of contemporary art, film, and architecture from around the world. In 2019, the Annual Congress of the Association of International Curators of Contemporary Art, also known as IKT, took place in the United States for the first time in the organization's 45-year history. Curators from the U.S., Europe, and the Caribbean gathered in Miami, Florida, to explore the contemporary art scene and participate in a symposium about art and resilience in the climate crisis. One evening, Fresh Art International hosted an event to introduce IKT to Miami. We set up a temporary recording studio in a poolside cabana, outdoors, under the moonlight, at a Miami Beach hotel. That's where we sat down with a dozen participating IKT delegates and local cultural producers to record their stories of creative resilience. In the conversations that follow, you'll hear curatorial strategies for engaging new communities, increasing the visibility of underrepresented artists, and addressing social, political, and environmental challenges. From Finland, Taru Elfing is a curator and writer based in Helsinki. We met in Oslo at the 2017 IKT Congress, when globally engaged artists and curators were already addressing the topic of climate change. This year's conference theme reveals how that concern has become a full-blown international call to action. Elfing's project highlights how research and cross-disciplinary knowledge can bring together artists and scientists to think about our climate crisis in a unique Baltic island environment. I've been working for about two years now, more intensely, but before that, over the years, continued dialogue with a kind of research field station, really, on an island uh, in the Baltic Sea, outside of southwest of Finland. They've been on the island since the 60s, collecting data on different kinds of environmental transformations in the marine environment, but also on the islands. What's interesting about that place particularly is that it used to be a mental asylum. So the island used to actually be a kind of exclusion, first of all for people with leprosy in the 17th century and then eventually it turned into a mental institution. So it has this sort of very uh, dense history of rationality, history of institutions, history of gender and othering that now houses an institution that basically studies climate change. And most of the artists and art curators that I've taken there over the last few years have also found it extremely inspiring as a context where to really engage with urgencies today. Tell me about the island itself. 
The island is quite small. The whole area has been very, very fragile environmentally for a long time now. It's been over the last few decades. Uh, it slowly got better, but it was very badly polluted from nutrients, from agriculture mainly, and also from the cities, like the whole of the Baltic Sea. Now, the Baltic Sea has been known as the most polluted sea in the world some years ago still. I think the situation is a lot better now, but it was really bad in the sort of 70s, 80s. So on this island, it's interesting because when you have this knowledge of the state of the sea being kind of actually really, really in a bad state and also very precarious because of the changes that are happening now with the climate are really affecting it badly. It's interesting when you come to this island, it's like a kind of safe haven, you know, somehow far away from all the urgencies of the world. So there's a disjunction somehow with the kind of knowledge of actually how the environment is changing and is, is threatened. And actually this sense of being just in a really idyllic, blissful, remote place. What would you like people to know about this project and its relationship with the idea of sustainability or resilience? The key thing that got me started working on this project was the real sense with the environmental urgencies today, we need a lot of cross-disciplinary work to really address the issues at stake. And we also need to really focus on the kind of very local specificities and understand the local contexts, uh, but at the same time be able to connect them somehow with the planetary processes that are happening. And I really strongly believe that artists are really amazing at drawing people with different kinds of knowledge together around shared concerns and mediating between these, but also navigating between this sort of micro and macro level of concerns. Uh, but also another thing is that I really want to support artists in very long-term and committed projects that are research-based, that are not very easily at home in this sort of project economy that the art world also is part of and very much driven by. In a way, the platform that I'm forming now is, is really wanting to offer, offer space and time for artists to come together to really think about their own practice and how do our methodologies and practices and structures that support our work, how do we have to change them in the face of this knowledge of the climate change and the kind of social changes that are happening. From Puerto Rico, Michelle Fiedler is curator at Sala de Arte Público de Siqueiros in Mexico City. She speaks about subverting the norms in large public institutions and her project with artist Adriana Minoliti. Collective model for an effective institution centers on creating opportunities for diverse communities to experience art that addresses real-life issues. I loved your description of your practice, how you use the word burden, deadlocks, possibilities, visions, and fantasies of transforming the institution into a platform for projects that actively and consciously seek to transform present-day established social norms. Mm -hmm. Yes. So what did you mean by that? I've been working in, at Sala de Arte Público Siqueiros for the past three years and being an established museum, a public museum with uh, government funding. In Mexico, it's when you have public funding, you have most of your funding, but you do encounter certain burdens that are that what 
the more established art world wants you to show are certain big artists, people who, who have a, a, an established career. Also, we have encountered that most of our program is male, too. And I think that happens in a lot of places, but maybe the United States, it's a little bit more advanced in its conversation about this, but there's not a lot of talking about gender rights or women rights or homosexual rights. And that's something that I've always been interested in because of my life and upbringing, because of what I've studied in. And I believe, for me, curatorial practice, if it wasn't possible to do activism through it, I don't know if I would still be doing it so enthusiastically. One project was inspired by another project. Yes. And uh, a curator from Miami, who's mm -hmm. based in Miami now, also from Puerto Rico, Maria Elena Ortiz, curated a project for the facade with Carlos Mota, The mm -hmm. Shape of Freedom. And then you curated a project that responded to that. Tell me about your project. I invited Argentinian artist Adriana Minoliti to do a facade project. We have that public project on the facade of our museum which just like looks into the street it's a wall that everyone sees like very similar what you have a lot of here in Wynwood also upper class residential area within the museum circuit in Mexico City but the thing is that Carlos Mota what he did with uh, the shape of freedom was that he just painted usually artists take this space and do very elaborate complex aesthetic work, which is beautiful and is part of what we want to do too. But Carlos Mota painted a pink triangle. And the pink triangle is, of course, a representation of gay pride. It was mostly used during the AIDS epidemic. To make appear an image, you make something, a whole thing visible, right? So he was talking about the history of the way gay people have been marked and how it became later an, an, a symbol of pride. And what Adriana Minoliti did was that she reversed that triangle, painted it green, and that is, of course, the, the symbol for abortion rights in Argentina. She was very much inspired by Carlos Mota. How did you make this become a public conversation besides the, the image on the front of the building? It was a bigger project, not only the facade. Another beautiful thing that Adriana did was that something we can't do so much in the museum because of institutional bureaucratic and governmental burdens are that we are, have a very controlled museum shop, a very controlled uh, public program. So she, by making it her work, she completely changed the shop of the museum, invited people in so they could sell their th things. Our compromise was that we would not take a commission. It would be a total informal economy for us and for them. And she also like constructed the whole public program for that, for the three months that her project was there. The educational aspect of this was about gender and sexual rights, correct? It was. It was absolutely um, about that. It was about giving free space to certain collectives, feminist collectives, gender-fluid collectives, that usually are never, ever represented in an, in an institutional space in Mexico in the way that they were. But also, like we were allowed to get some of the budget of our public projects to pay academics 
that are speaking in Spanish about these kind of problems, not in English. You know, like we have that thing that a lot of great theory gets written in English. We don't get it in Spanish. So at the time, it's such an important thing the way you talk about gender today that by us importing only like what's being written in English, we are losing a lot of that nuances that go on. Because in Spanish, we can say they, for example, instead of she or, if, or instead of he. So we, we brought some academics that deal with that in Spanish for free, absolutely for free to give free classes there. Yusef Merhi is an artist, coder, researcher, and curator. Originally from Venezuela, he's based in Miami. We talk about how Merhi staged a virtual takeover at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Caracas to create a curatorial platform and gain attention for the art form known as net art. Hacking versus curating. What does that mean in the contemporary art world in the context of a museum, for example? The museum project that you pointed out to me was the Museum of Contemporary Art of Caracas hacked for four years, 2000 to 2004? Correct. That's a long hacking. Oh, yeah. Was the museum aware they were being hacked? They were aware. The founder of the museum wrote a letter when it was hacked in the year 2000, almost 20 years ago, and she asked for her domain to be returned to the museum, to the institution. And I got that domain name and the access to the museum data and also identity because even at 20 years ago, the internet was being used by scholars and people in the academic environment to find information. And she was concerned that the museum um, was not only hacked, but it could be used with a different purpose, which I did. What did you do? I had an argument about the fact that the Museum of Contemporary Art of Caracas didn't engage into digital art at all, that they refused to exhibit works that employed new technologies such as net art or complex interactive installations, I decided to take the museum's website and create a digital salon, a space where artists could present their works on net art and also promote something about the history of net art in their domain name and make it widely visible and accessible. It had an incredible resonance when the press learned that the museum was hacked. They started calling me. They wanted to know what happened. They wanted to know the motivation behind that action. And they followed the events. And at some point, the action 
of hacking the website was getting more attention than all the exhibitions at the museum, which is absolutely incredible. The people that were benefiting directly from this were the artists that were exhibiting their work. I was acting as a curator because I had experience developing net art and building net art communities in South America and overseas because I was based in New York at that moment. So it created turbulence in the art context. It made people question what was happening with digital art, with new media. And after that action, the museum felt compelled to start accepting works that employ technology and even promoting them, making exhibitions that were using new technologies. So it was a transformational call to action. Yes, yes. And I felt like David fighting with Goliath. It was a battle and the curators got mad at me. And the director of the museum after Sofia Inver was dismissed by Hugo Chavez, who made her resign from the museum unfairly. She had a predecessor that almost denied my presence in the art context in Venezuela. So it was a battle that lasted 10 years. And after 10 years, I met again with the same curators and they told me, we are sorry, we made a mistake. We were uh, emotionally affected. Our egos were touched. We're sorry. And now we're friends again. But I think it was a beautiful lesson about how technology could be a great channel to engage into real human progress. Based in Kingston, O'Neill Lawrence is senior curator at the National Gallery of Jamaica. He's a practicing artist, researcher, and writer on gender and sexuality in the visual arts. Here, he outlines how collaboration is key to engaging community and enriching the cultural ecology of his country. One of the things that we were talking about was resilience and sustainability, which is such a big topic. What I'm after, really, with that question is what you face as a curator in Jamaica. It's a challenging environment to be a curator in the first place. Yes. I don't know if you have automatic audience for contemporary art. Not necessarily, no. It is one one of the things that has come to mind. I think the last time we saw each other was at Tilting Axis and one of the themes of that conference was about the cultural ecologies and I've had to be thinking about that and rethinking um, that concept for some time now. The reality is that in order for us to keep going, to maintain relevance, which is the most important thing, and to keep people's interests going is to develop partnerships. That's the thing that we've been working on for some time now at the gallery. We've developed 
some very solid partnerships with various stakeholders in the cultural arena in Jamaica. You were telling me about a, a recent project that was titled Beyond Fashion. Oh, yes. That was, was an amazing success. The opening was our largest opening to date in the history of the National Gallery. And I will credit that with, I mean, just with partnerships. Because, I mean, working with the artists, of course, we were able to build up a, a good amount of buzz for the exhibition. But the issue that we have, which is Jamaica has a relatively young population, and the, the school curricula allows it actually mandates that students have to come to a national gallery at some point in time, primary, secondary. But it's that 18 to 35 demographic that we are pushing to get to come into gallery. The people who can make a choice whether or not they want to come in. And with the Beyond Fashion exhibition, I mean, the premise of the exhibition itself was engaging because people, people love fashion. Seeing what the interpretations would be within the artistic realm was of interest, but what we tried to do was to partner with people who we knew would bring in that particular audience. We always have entertainment at our openings, and we had the Quilt Performing Arts Company that has a very large following of that very demographic that we wanted to grab. What they, would that look like? They are a fascinating group. I don't want to call it musical theater because they sing, they dance, everything that they do, it's art in itself because it's performance art in itself because everything that they do has social commentary built into it. They are some of the top level performers we have in Jamaica, so it's like excellent quality. Each one of them on their own could be a top level entertainer. So having a group of like 20, 25 people who are of that caliber, they've developed like a serious following. People go wherever they are. So when we had them as the entertainment for our opening, we had busloads of people coming in. And we also partnered with a new initiative in Jamaica, the Kingston Creative, where they have an art walk that's trying to activate downtown Kingston as an artistic community. And what happened was they also brought their group. The artists, of course, brought their friends, families, supporters. And we ended up having over 1,000 people at, at our opening event. So it's working with that system to make sure that we are all benefiting from each other. We're providing a space for Quill because we provide a very large arena-like space so they can bring in crowds. They have a massive space to perform. We are partnering with the Kingston Creative because they're able to bring their groups to a set venue that they know they're going to have a quality experience. And with all of those things combined, we're all able to help each other and support each other and then we all benefit in the end. And that, for me, is how we have managed to maintain relevance. You know, you can do good exhibitions, but the really important thing is to get people in. You can do the best work ever, but if people don't know about it, it almost doesn't exist. So it's, it's the ability to actually get everybody to work together towards a common goal and common benefit. And I think that that's kind of developing a symbiosis. For us, that's how we are functioning at our best. Sometimes it doesn't quite work that way, but at our best, it's a, it's a perfect symbiosis in our ecology in Jamaica. Marina Reyes-Franco is an art historian and curator 
born and based in San Juan, Puerto Rico. We recorded with her for the first time in May 2018. That's when the Caribbean initiative known as Tilting Axis invited artists and curators working in the region to meet in the Dominican Republic. In Miami, Reyes Franco talks about an upcoming exhibition that she's organizing around a topic she's been researching for years, the impact of the visitor economy on the Caribbean. Resisting Paradise is the title of a show I'm going to do with three Caribbean artists. One is Leisha Johnson, the other is Deborah Ansinger, both are Jamaican. Leisha's based in Chicago now because he went back to school. He's doing his master's now, and Deborah's in Kingston, and Joyri Minaya, who's a Dominican artist who lives in New York. I think about it as an iteration, like the next development of the research that I've been doing on the visitor economy and, and how tourism influences culture and how it influences art production in the region. This particular show is really based on how tourism affects bodies and how it also commodifies bodies. So it has a lot to do with sex tourism, has to do with how bodies are portrayed on the internet. They're, they're thinking about the prints that we use, the, um, the images that we post, the hashtags that we use, how we search Google images, what comes up. So, for example, like JD Minaya has uh, an installation that is called uh, Dominican Women Google Search. And it's all based on the images that she found looking for images that are categorized as Dominican women. The title was taken from a book by Angelique Nixon. She's a Bahamian scholar who lives in, in Trinidad. When I found this book, Resisting Paradise, I thought that this was perfect because it was really how artists in the region and how people that were working in culture were critically assessing the situation and really looking at the history of how the images and all the ideas around paradise, tropicality, Caribbean, exoticness, like how these things came together and they affect us in how we think of ourselves and how we project what we can do and what our potential is. Lori Mertes, director of Locust Projects Miami, grew up in Florida. Local artists established this independent platform as an arts incubator. Locust now operates a space at the edge of Miami's design district, offering exhibition, education, residency, and grant opportunities that empower artists' research and experimentation. Challenges exist the world over in creating a cultural ecosystem that supports contemporary art. Tell me about Locust Projects, how Locust Projects has been involved in sustaining that environment for Miami. So Locust Projects' very founding is actually all about three artists who were trying to really 
create a sustainable practice for themselves. They had just graduated from Pratt. They found themselves back in their hometown of Miami. And they saw that there were sort of these extremes of there's museums and then there's commercial art galleries. And what does an artist who's just graduated do if they also have the issue of not being able to have a great studio space like they might have had in grad school? So really that is the basis, the idea of creating a space by which artists have opportunities to maintain and sustain their practice. That's what Locus Projects was very much founded on and continues to focus on today. Well, one of the initiatives of Locus that Fresh Art International has benefited from is the Wavemaker Grants that you manage now. Wavemaker Grants was actually the very first regional regranting program in the Southeast. And it started with Cannonball, which is a former nonprofit that administered this program. It's funded by the Andy Warhol Foundation for the Arts and really was about finding a way to put resources into the hands of artists directly so that artists on their own terms could work and do their practice on their own time. The grants are really designed to be non-institutional. What does that mean? It means that these are projects and they're meant to also be publicly accessible. Those are sort of the two parameters and after that anything goes. And so we're supporting artists, collectives, curators like yourself in doing projects that aren't destined to be in a museum, that's the institutional aspect, and that are broadly accessible to the public. They're made to be affordable or free. And so that allows artists to really respond to their community, do projects in the places that they know they want to, to do a project. You know, that they somehow some, have something they want to respond to, whether it's building beehives, artists design beehives in Little Haiti, or building a barge that has, you know, sustainable food growing along the riverways so that homeless people have access to food sources, fresh food sources. So there's all sorts of types of projects, but they're really coming right directly from the artists. And this funding allows them to do something that perhaps they would not normally be able to do. I like that it encourages long-haul projects as well as research and development of new projects because that seed money is so important for the research of new ideas. For many artists who go through Locust, that project informs the next project. For so many artists, it's, I'm not done yet, right? You know, I do a project and I'm not done yet. And how do you continue that on? Frankie Cruz is a great example. He's been working on the Vivarium Meconium project. He started it at Spinello. It moved on to Locust projects where we had wonderful chrysalis monarchs emerging and this amazing collaboration he's created. But he's doing all of this research to really understand both how to create sustainability for these insects, what it means to the environment, and he's, it's now grown and, and it continues to live on. Onajide Shabaka, he's doing such intense research and travels that are going to inform something, and it's true. Artists don't usually get funding for that kind of thing. You know, everybody wants to see the product, not the process. I'm wondering what is the vision moving forward for Locust Projects for how you intend to engage and sustain what you started? Just like anyone in Miami right now, 
we're we're geographically vulnerable, right? We're we're space vulnerable, and that is definitely a concern to Locus. But we really want to stay focused on that founding premise of giving artists opportunities. And the way the the space has been shaped, it's been really a project room and a main gallery. We started doing some art on the move projects in the public sphere. We want to keep that spirit of the the artist really driving the process that Wavemaker really embodies, but we want to find more ways and scales to help give artists opportunities in many different ways, that not everyone needs the opportunity to do a massive site-specific installation, which is where Locust has really been very unique and distinctive. We'll continue to do that, but how do we continue to bring artists into our space so that they can experiment around and in within the context of those exhibitions that are on view? And how do we help to sustain the artist's practice and the business of being an artist? With the resources of Wavemaker, and we also took on Legal Art Link. And Legal Art Link is vital for artists to be able to have access to free, pro bono, legal services, advice, referrals, And we serve more than 100 artists every year. So we're trying to find ways to make sure that resource is really tangible and visible for artists in our community so that they know that we've got their back. Locust Projects, through the Andy Warhol Foundation for the Visual Arts, awarded a 2019 Wavemaker grant to a local creative collective that goes by the name of the Black Family Co-founder Naja Moon was born in North Carolina. Now calling Miami home, the artist and cultural producer explains why she and her collaborators organize community programs around music, food, and poetry. You feel that there are certain forms of engagement that are curating that just aren't recognized? And I mean, I, and I appreciate you, Kathy, for like kind of broadening that spectrum to include what is defined as a cultural producer. Connecting community in a way that's intentional, that has a narrative that is about art and using that to connect community. Um, if that is the definition of like cultural producer, that is also the definition of curatorial practice, maybe. So. Agreed. There are some people who are educated as curators, but everyone curates their life experience. Right. And I feel that what you do curate for the black family, which is why I invited you specifically to talk about, for one thing, I wanted everyone to know about the black family. I appreciate that. And I think, you know, the the black family is one project. Also, this girl's lunchbox is another project. Absolutely. And like talking about curating your life. I think that's a lot of the catalyst for the black family was like this experience of creating something amongst a group of artists that felt like, how do we make our life look like this every day? Building your life, putting it together in a way that is infused with art, that is infused with intention. That, that translates into, into the art world. What is the Black Family today? We're an artist collective. We produce cultural programs that are inspired by a variety of different arts practices. Initially, 
heavily focused on culinary arts and talking about this space that we inhabit and the intimacy of our homes or as a celebratory space when we dine together with people and how can we be more specific about the intention behind food and what it means when you cook a meal with someone, when you share a plate with someone and and trying to build that out into a, a project that has the utility of connecting community. And then even speaking about this girl's lunchbox, which is specifically a queer women's space, we're thinking about how do we use art to help build bridges in between that kind of exclusive space for those women. So it is about resilience and sustaining community, not just sustaining it, but creating thriving. a thriving yeah. space for people to feel at home and fulfilled and to create. Yeah, how do we invent our own inspiration? How can that perpetuate a future that reflects what we want? Adding this performative aspect to the programs that we do, we realized that that specific space could hold its own. And so we kind of segmented Freedom Sessions into its own program where it's about artists that work with sound whether that be music or responding in the forms of dance or whatever that may mean to you and holding space for those people to perform however they want. You know, there's a lot of incredible artists, particularly in Miami, that are functioning in restaurants or spaces where they're expected to do covers. They're expected to entertain. And we want it to be a little bit different. Just be about, we want to hear your art. We want to hear what you do. And then have a dialogue afterwards that supports that that initiative that says like we're asking questions about your practice because we want to be inspired by it we respect it and we've featured folks who do everything from poetry and hip-hop to blues to funk you know whatever it's a wide range and this is specifically for the miami creative community It has started that way, and I think that Miami has a ton of incredible artists that don't get the amount of love and appreciation that they should. But we're not limited to that either. We're not against bringing in people from other places. And what about going other places? We've done programs in New York and D.C. as well. We went on a field trip of sorts together as a collective to Cuba. The branches of this tree definitely reach out to other other spots. Black! Now I'm about to black. That's why they stay in black. Everybody's black. It's that real black. That shit that make you feel black. You see they're trying to kill black. That's why we need to build. An IKT delegate we met in Norway, Eva Asp is director of Javle Konstcentrum in her home country of Sweden. Though a small town, Javle plays an important role as part of the International Cities of Refuge Network, known as ICORN. The independent organization's members offer temporary shelter to artists and writers at risk. Eva Asp's challenge is creating ways for these artist refugees to connect with her community. In my work now in Javle, it's a tricky commission because it's a municipality, it's a small town, and they don't have much money. 
So the three years I've been working, we have a zero budget for all the time. One you of have the to thing, be very creative. Yeah, I have to be very creative. But one of the things that we have in Gävle is that Gävle City is part of the ICORN network, which is the International Cities of Refuge network. And how many cities in the world play that role? Not so many. And I think that like in the American states, there are like two cities only, like Pittsburgh and Mexico maybe. Maybe a few more, I don't know, but very few. In Europe, it's very common. And this Gävle, they have accepted to, to take an artist at risk, and they chose a visual artist. So that's very uncommon. So that's the first challenge. artist that you had was from Syria. Yes, and his name was Issa Tumma. And he was uh, already very internationally oriented. And he had, he's a photographer and he's done a lot of films of the situation in Syria during the war. And uh, so he also continued his work and he, and he was uh, internationally renowned for this work. But the second artist now that we have, he's from Iran originally. He's a sculptor. You don't get to choose the artist. You just get to, to give him the space. So he worked with uh, sculptures made from garbage metal. So it's not the type of art that I originally worked with. So that's a challenge to sort of introduce this to people. You mentioned to me that you're looking for ways to connect whatever he makes there yeah. with the political situation yeah. in Sweden, yes. with the oppression of artists in his home country? Yes, because he's been oppressed, because he's also Kurdish. Uh, so he worked with his own culture, and, and that's one of the reasons why he's been forced to move from country to country. I also like to, to make it more meaningful also for me to compare with the situation in Sweden where money refunding are going down, down, down. So that's the threat for art. That's publicly commissioned. So we're doing a show this summer, which is called an art, I call it art in exile. When he was in Turkey, he couldn't show his works like in, in museums. So he made a tour of his own with only with a truck and his, his sculptures. And he was going around in the countryside, putting them everywhere. And with, only with a megaphone and say, hello, hello, artists come to your village. And so we're doing like a reenactment of that now, but in, in the area where we are. And it has been a huge success. People are like, wow, we want this artist to come. And that's a little bit ironical because it's not the kind of art that, that we show at the contemporary art place. But these the, people can understand this and it's made it's over recycled material. So that's a little bit ironic. What are the shapes? What does they it look like? They are like animal like? or they are like, well, you. Uh, or so human, very like, literal. Very, object, very literal. Uh, forms. Literal. Yes. Yes. And might not be something at all found in a contemporary art space. No, really not, actually. So I have to sort of make it like, like a context. That the way you did it is yeah. by reenacting yeah. something from a country where this yeah. expression is yeah. at risk. Yeah. From Puerto Rico, Sofia Shaula Reeser del Rio is an artist, educator, and curator. Recently, she had the opportunity to visit Cuba for the first time. The experience changed her course of studies. Now she's preparing her master's thesis at the University of Madrid, Carlos III, on the relationship of migration and trauma to architecture. So my grandfather is from Cuba, and my mother was born in Cuba. 
but they left right when the revolution striked in the late 50s. So my thesis is about uh, researching his work and looking at how we are influenced by architecture and the construction of those spaces affect emotionally like our connection and our identities but also thinking about exile and how it forces us to rebuild and reconstruct homes or that idea of home your grandfather was an architect mm-hmm and so how does architecture play into this story of resilience to be resilient is a powerful word. You have a lot in play. And if you think about architecture beyond just a structure, beyond just something that is static for it to exist, there's actions, right? There's things that happen through it, and there's time that erodes materials. And so that's what I'm fascinated in, especially because my grandfather passed away in 2000 because of ALS. And so it's like thinking about what still is tangible that I can go back and revisit and, and see, and then the intangible and how that plays a role in how we experience community. And you use the words trauma and healing also in describing this idea you have. Yes, well, exile is trauma and migration. As Puerto Rican from a background of Cuban exile, Spanish exile, it's present, and I just realized that when I was in, in Madrid, how important it is to understand how all of these histories affect my body and my psychology. And if it affects me, it's affecting a community at large. And after the Hurricane Maria, I realized that it, it was very important to not only think about how the arts create experiences that are not only beautiful objects to be observed and, and allow for new narratives to happen, but it also has a depth into our uh, psychology, you know, into our behaviors and how it can heal. And so I was very interested in that and bridging diasporas and thinking about what it means to be displaced and working in alternate locations. And that led me since 2014, before Hurricane Maria, to work on a project specifically in Puerto Rico art fair Mecca, and it was bridging artists that are emerging, specifically women artists, working outside of Puerto Rico, but that are from Puerto Rico, are some Puerto Rican relationship, and bringing them back to the island and then bridging. It was a beautiful project where I was able to really like merge my interest in, in history, the f working outside and working without trauma, and then how you heal coming back to the island and fostering those, those relationships. Evidence of the world's expanding commitment to gender equity. More than a few contemporary art curators are centering their practice on women artists. In the year 2000, Bayardo Blandino was invited to serve as the artistic director and curator of the first-ever Contemporary Visual Arts Center of women in the arts in Honduras. Here, he shares how the organization has developed over time. We make the first space for working with women artists in contemporary uh, ways. 
So you were invited to create this space. Yeah. Why do you think they chose you? In this moment, I come back to Hero, I come back to USA, many places. And in this moment in Tegucigalpa, they are nothing to compare with uh, this experience with our contemporary. And the other reason was Honduran women artists to come back to study to in USA, in Germany, in many places, and they needed a space for shows, and they don't have it. As an ongoing project, how is it impacting the yeah, community? Yeah, in the press, after 20 years, we are very proud of this initiative. We are sure we open like a door for the new uh, emerging art- women artists. They come with us and they try to work with us in, in the same way because we, we right. try to work with people who need to explore, who need to change, who need to, what to say? To express their creative yeah. energy, but outside the market. Exactly. Right. You also play the role of documentarian. Yeah, we have, a, uh, right now, we have, a, what to say, Archivo. An archive. Ar- archive. Mm-hmm. Just uh, this year, we have uh, 20 years, we make the first exhibition only with women artists from Central American region in Honduras. After the Huracan Mitch, Huracan Mitch was in 1998, and we do this big exhibition with other thing around art, but exhibition of art with 20 artists from Central America, and then with five cur- women curators 20 years ago. For us, it's the more is important we do. The most important thing you've ever done yeah, was that yeah. first gesture. Because more of these artists actually in the in the top. That really helped them grow in their yeah. career. Yeah. And right and now we have it, we work with another generation, a new generation That's of right. artists. I told just today. Now uh, there are more opportunity for women artists. Our institution, my country, are more open. For example, 20 years. Before, you had to be a painter or a sculptor. Right now, we have a million. That is a good thing for the younger artists, especially women artists. Born in Cuba and now based in Miami, Aldede Delgado looks to amplify the visibility of women artists by documenting their art history. Her project to create an archive representing Cuban women photographers, has expanded into a global effort. In 2019, she founded the nonprofit Women Photographers International Archive. The organization is created to support, promote, research, and educate about the work of women and those identified as women in photography. We are committed to highlighting the contribution of women photographers to modern and contemporary art through talks, exhibition, editorial projects, opportunity for artists and partnerships with universities, museums, libraries, and other organizations. Why did you choose the photographic arts? Well, for me, photography is a powerful tool 
to speak about urgent topics of our reality. I think, for example, when I, you see a photo, we can talk about the situation of women. We can talk about different topics. Where so. you are, the context, exactly. Exactly. The, the story. In one hand, women photographers, it was a very pioneer, um, pioneer research. That's in, true, yes. because photography wasn't considered fine art. Exactly, exactly. For example, in 2013, there are few investigations about women photographers in Cuba, so that was the main reason for why I started this project. So right now, I am living in Miami, and for me, it's so important to speak about our community and include this community in the project. For that reason, I create this international A bigger, So Cuba is on the world stage. Exactly. That's wonderful. Thank you. We have a lot of work to do, and of course, we are open to collaborators, or volunteers, and any person that is interested in our research and promote our women where we are open. I catch up with two Oslo-based artist curators whose latest projects seek ways to recognize pioneering women artists. In 2017, when we connected with Tala Fasfold and Tanya Thorjusen at IKT, we recorded an episode featuring their artist book projects. These two have been collaborating for nearly 13 years, on uniting the environmental and the spiritual through art. Well, we've been doing a lot of research, finding many different women pioneers in the art because we wanted to make this series of risograph prints that we have a woman. But really this is about visualizing, seeing women artists as they are as people also because we all know who Picasso looked like and Dali looked like and all these men artists, but we rarely know what the women look like other than they are presented as a muse or a girlfriend or something. So we wanted to really present them as strong uh, artists in their own name and in their own visual self. So um, with the coral sanctuaries that we're also working on now, we will name each of the coral sanctuaries after one of the women pioneers that we are also focusing on. You know, all the street names are male, the, the square names, I mean, all these names in the public space are male names most often. So we are also talking about this is uh, the name of, you know, this, this place has the name of a woman. What is your current curatorial project that has to do with resilience, Ecofeminism, the environment. In general, we always invite lots of other artists into the projects that we are working on. And when I say that we use artistic research as a curatorial practice, this is also what I mean. So we start with something that we are very interested in artistically as artists. And then we also see that so many other artists are working in related themes. And then we reach out to them or they reach out to us and we collaborate with them. And this will become bigger exhibitions, and it will become publications, and will... Yeah, and in a way, generate like a movement. That's what we're hoping for. I <laughs> love it, the locust movement. Yeah, well, or, or just like we want to generate like the focus of this spiritual connection to nature and the women and the ecofeminism and the nature. Yes. It's all interconnected in some way. And we work with energy. 
So the places that we work with are like interesting, energetic places. The public art places where we do project, that's something interesting in an energetic way somehow, like holy stones or places that people have been working in for a long time. And then we also bring these projects into energetically high energy places like here, like right here at IKT Congress yeah. or say the Venice Biennale or Manifesta or Documenta. Mm -hmm. So we bring the, the things that we work with into these places so that we could also have lots of conversations which we see as a way of working with energy because then we will plant seeds with other people and people will start to work with the same themes that we are working with in the end things will happen yeah yeah you're planting seeds this is the fresh art international podcast i'm kathy bird we recorded the conversations for this program in April 2019 in Miami, Florida, during the annual Congress of the Association of International Curators of Contemporary Art, also known as IKT. The episode is funded in part by IKT Miami. Globally engaged curators and cultural producers bring a range of projects to isolated and urban communities animating emergent and well-established cultural spaces, online and in real life. Aware of rapidly changing socio-political and environmental conditions, these curatorial leaders support artists, cultivate accessible venues for creative expression, and initiate partnerships that connect diverse constituencies. They forefront the creative process in ways that value our fragile ecosystem and respect the potential of communities to understand and embrace the power of contemporary art. Please share Fresh Art International with your friends and take a few minutes to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. The John S. and James L. Knight Foundation Emily Hall Tremaine Foundation, Locust Projects and the Andy Warhol Foundation for the Visual Arts, Tempest Projects, Artists in Residence in Everglades, and listeners like you are among those who make this oral history project possible. To support our stories, go to freshartinternational.com and click on the red support button. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for more contemporary art talk.